Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. I'm wearing a Browns jersey. So, if this, you know, we don't want anything to get in the way of people and Jesus. So, if this is like a stumbling block for you, it's not. It's not. It's not for Jay. And if it's a, if you're a Steelers fan or if you're not, if you like another team, um, I'm not going to say that Jesus likes the Browns better, but. Browns fans have a better chance to grow and mature over the years. We've, we've become very resilient, so he's definitely using the Browns. And in fact, Paul talks a lot about sports uh, in, in the Bible. He talks a lot about sports. There, was, there were games that happened between the, Olympic, between the Olympics that happened in Corinth, and most scholars believe that he actually probably attended some of those games. He talked about boxing and running and training and um, he talks a lot about it, but he didn't let the conversation stay there. Paul would use sports in the same way he'd use anything. He would use it as an illustration or a metaphor for spiritual things. So sports are fun. Sports are great. I, I love sports, but like anything else, it's not a way, when I'm watching the Browns, there's a way to watch sports and enjoy sports that you're actually worshiping God instead of the team and people. And so if you are a sports fan, that might be something to pray about and think about because like Paul, we should use everything not as an end in and of itself, not just watching football for the sake of football, but actually is there a way to enjoy creation, even sports, in a way where you're still worshiping God? It's an interesting conversation, very interesting conversation to have. The year was 1095. It was early winter in France, and Pope Urban II stood up in front of the Council of Clermont, and he gave a speech that launched a movement that launched a series of battles that ended up being one of the most violent religious wars in history. The Pope called Christians everywhere to come together and reclaim parts of the Holy Land that had been stolen from them. Every Christian who participated was promised remission of sins and eternal glory. Farmers all over Europe picked up their tools and turned them into weapons. They traveled from every corner of Europe to Constantinople, and from there, from there a, a holy army amassed, and they all traveled together to Jerusalem. Thus began a series of what have become known as the Crusades, all done in the name of Christ. Historians like disagree as to how many people were killed in these Crusades, but it ranges from one to nine million people. More than once, as I've shared my convictions and my faith in Christ with people, these crusades have come up. 
And people will say things like, I refuse to believe in a religion with such a violent history. I refuse to believe in a religion that claims to have love as its center and central ethic that has such a violent history. What do you say to that? What do you suppose, what should we say to that? I think we can say, not everything done in the name of Christ represents Christ. And I think we can say even a bit stronger, not everyone who claims to be a Christian, if we're reading James right, is a Christian. In the book of James, he's helping us understand the difference between a saving faith and a dead faith. And that's important because there's a lot of bad behavior that is done in the name of Christ. And perhaps you have had an experience with someone who claimed to be a Christian, who knew a lot about God, and behaved very poorly. James is addressing that today. So if you want to look, open your scripture with me to James 2, 14 through 19. We read 14 through 18 last week. We're going to add one verse to that that's very important that we're going to focus on today. So James chapter 2, 14 through 19. It's also in your, your sermon notes if you would like to follow along there. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is making the case that if one claims to have faith in Christ, it means absolutely nothing if what they say with their words doesn't line up with their life. James says, if I don't see genuine evidence by the way that you live, then I'm skeptical. Today we're going to zero in on this wrong idea that as long as you believe the right things about God, you have a state saving faith. And he's addressing this directly in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Saving faith is more than merely believing correct things about God. In fact, the, the shepherd team is, is working on a very gentle, life-giving, non-authoritarian membership process. It's, it's going to be the type of membership that we feel is biblical, and it's going to free people up to do ministry. Um, we're, we're kind of tweaking the ways that we gather in order to make sure that what is working, we keep doing. And if there's other things that we want to try to experiment with community together, um, we're going to have freedom to do that because we don't want to be an authoritarian church that everything has to go through the pastor. So we want to be careful about that. 
And a lot of people believe that in order to become part, a member of a church, it's almost like you have to have a theology test. So let's say at the end of this membership process, we decide that if you're going to be a Southsider, we're going to give you a theology test, and you're going to have to write essays on you know, a comprehensive understanding of who God is, what he's done for us, and it's going to be difficult, it's going to be essays, and that's how we're going to determine. And we read through these essays, is it possible for you to answer everything perfectly, beautifully, clearly in these theological essays and still not be a Christian? Yes, because demons probably have better understanding of God have seen God more clearly than anyone in this room because they bent, they come from, they were kicked out of heaven. They were in the throne room of God. So it wouldn't prove anything to us. If you ace a theology test, it doesn't prove anything. It, it proves that you are on par with demons. That's all we establish. That's why we can say, if you meet a person who is brilliant when it comes to theology and understanding of scripture, but they're mean-spirited, unloving, never joyful, not kind, don't radiate the peace and joy of God, their empty knowledge about God is demonic. Why is this relevant? Because for whatever reason, a lot of people in this room have had painful experiences with people who have known a lot about God, people who have known a lot of Bible, and they've used that knowledge as a type of weapon, as a way to intimidate, as, to way, as a way to build a false hierarchy. And it's important for me, for you, to know that you don't have to be intimidated by that. Now, I'm not talking about people who have a rich theology and a warm heart. And I would say that describes a lot of people in this room. To have a rich theology and a warm heart that transcends you and makes you more at rest, makes you less and more, just chill, it's easy to be around me, you know? You should be more at rest and relaxed because of your faith in Christ, because of what you know. The more you know theologically and actually apply it to your life, the more you become a joyful, peaceful, patient person. It's a good thing. We have people in this room who know a lot about God, and they don't use it as a weapon because we would sniff that out. They use it as a way to be transformed into the image of Christ and share that knowledge with others. That's not what I'm talking about. That's good. I'm talking about people who many have said to me when they run across someone like that makes them feel dumb, makes them feel inferior, and what I have heard is people say things, well, I don't know what to do. There's nothing I can do. They know the Bible better than me. They obviously know more theology than me. I'm kind of trapped. I just, they're right. I, I can't even argue with them. I don't know how to have a conversation with them. I, I can't even say anything. And I'm saying, yes, you can. If James is teaching us that it's not merely about what you believe or know, you can say something. You can speak up. How about this? Let's just make it very practical. 
What if you said, until I see the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in you, everything you say to me is irrelevant. All you're doing is flexing. I don't care. You could say that. I'm not impressed. You know what impresses me? What impresses me is people who, when I'm around them, I feel the loving presence of Christ, the gentle yoke of Christ, the lowly come off of Christ through their profound understanding of theology and what God has given us in Christ. That's what impresses me, and you've got a long way to go. That's what you can say. Because really, a lot of Jesus' ministry was giving his disciples vocabulary to use against any and every form of self-righteousness. And empty knowledge about God is not genuine faith. It's empty, dead, self-righteous faith. The disciples were intimidated too by people who had far greater theological knowledge of them. And Jesus said, don't be. Don't be impressed by that. Don't condone that. Jesus said things like, they wash the outside of the cup, but the inside's dirty. He said things like, they're dead inside. He said things like, they're snakes. He said things like, they're evil. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Said that to people who know the Old Testament better than you will ever know it. He called them a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? So if you know people who use theology as a weapon, you should listen to this podcast. You should rewind back to what I just said you should say to them. And don't tell them I told you to say it, because I don't, I, don't, I don't need to have conversation with them. <laughs> you deal with it. And you just memorize what I said, and then you say it back to them. So whenever you deal with that type of wolf, which is what that is, We're protecting the sheep here. You don't, and what I've learned is you you don't protect the sheep from wolves by becoming a wolf. You protect the sheep from wolves by teaching them how to deal with wolves, and that is a wolf. So memorize, memorize it, and use it whenever and wherever you want to. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but they are very zealous. They're very sober minded. They're very serious. They do have a fear of God. Great. Even demons believe and shudder. They're very serious, too, about God. That means zero. If you don't see, you can tell a tree by the fruit. If you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in that person, don't listen. And tell them you're not interested. You don't have to condone it. Now, you may notice that I rail against this behavior pretty hard. It's because I've seen good people who are pursuing Christ, who've been bullied by people who have this version of a dead faith. Far too often. And a lot of people in this room, their hearts are still recovering from people who have left that type of destructive wake behind. And somebody needs to tell them. So if the fruit of someone's theology makes them more judgmental, makes them more arrogant, controlling, makes them more of a curmudgeon, makes them haughty in spirit, it's demonic. Now this part is really important. Again, I'm not saying 
I'm not saying that as someone who doesn't enormously enjoy and appreciate a rich understanding about God. My favorite author is John Owen. He's a 17th century Puritan theologian. For me, nobody holds a candle to him. Nobody. Nobody's in the same universe. He's, he's writing from a different dimension. He does what proper theology ought to do. That is, he brings things to life in me that would otherwise be dormant inside of me. But when, he, when I read very, very slowly, out loud, multiple times, and I finally understand what he's saying, when I read John Owen, there are things that awaken in me that I literally have been, I, in our last house, I had a, a big stand-up um, table that was about this high that I built, and I would sit out there, and I remember reading John Owen and stopping and putting it down and just worshiping God. And I've read him in Confess Sin. I've read him in Cried. I've read him in saying worship songs. That's what good theology is supposed to do. It awakens you to the beauty and the goodness and the glory of God and what he's given us in Christ. I've fell on my knees reading him. That's what good theology is supposed to do. It's not supposed to make you grumpy, which is what it did when I first started in seminary. I became grumpy, and Kara said, if you continue to be grumpy, we're not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. You're getting arrogant. She was. She, she said it. She was right. So I had to repent, and I had to ask God, is there a way for me to learn about you and not become arrogant? And he's like, uh, yeah. That's kind of the point. You're going in the wrong direction. So don't hear me saying that learning theology is bad. That would be over-swerving to avoid this ditch and then going to the other side of the road and swerving in the other side, the ditch on the other side. That's not what James is saying. That's not what I'm saying. Here's the difference. Here's the difference, okay? In a dead faith, doctrine leads to domineering. In a saving faith, doctrine leads to doxology. Let me spell that out. In a dead faith, doctrine leads to domineering. Okay, this is what I mean. Someone's learning. They're reading all these systematic theology books. Really, really, really good thing if done with a humble heart. If done with a heart that wants to see Jesus more clearly. Really, really, really bad thing if you just want to learn more about God to use it as a, as a source of power over other people. So doctrine leads to domineering in a dead faith simply means that you're going to use this to put your thumb down on people. You're going to use this to have the last word in every argument about God. You're going to use this to exercise power and control over people. You're going to use this to, to be grumpy and have an excuse for it because no one can say anything because you know a lot about God. That's doctrine leading to domineering. And like I said, you can say something about that. Rewind it and listen again. You can, you can use that. You can say that. But in a say, that's a dead faith. That's demonic faith. It's empty. means nothing. But in a saving faith, doctrine leads to doxology. Doxology is worship. In a saving faith... You learn something new about God as a means to an end. The end is not just learning new things about God. The end is 
knowing God better. So when you read something, you learn something about God, and it just expands your perspective of God. Because most of us have a Sunday school idea of who God is, and he's very uninteresting. But when you actually learn something new about God, it expands your eyes of who he is and what he's done for you. Your heart is warmed, and you can't help but worship him and thank him. And saving faith, doctrine leads to doxology. Paul's example of this, they're all over, but Romans 11 is a really tough doctrinal passage. It's a very, very tough chapter in the Bible. And Paul does his best to explain some difficult things. And at the end of the chapter, he says, he doesn't say, so there. So if you have any questions, ask me. I know all the answers. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid and for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul is talking about things about God that are difficult and he, gets on, he falls on his knees at the end of it and worships him. In Luke 24, two men are walking to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has been, has been crucified and resurrected, and these guys aren't really sure what's happened. They, they just know that Jesus has been crucified. They're devastated. They're processing this as they're walking home. They were obviously followers of Jesus. And Jesus catches up with them and starts walking with them and asking them, what's up? What's going on? And they're like, are you the only person around here who doesn't know what happened? Tell me about it. And so Jesus begins to... Teach them from the Old Testament all these different ways that pointed to the fact that the Messiah needed to be crucified. The Messiah needed to take the place of their sins. And so he walks them through the Old Testament. That is going to be an amazing sermon to hear one day if Jesus will say it again. He walks them, he teaches them, he preaches them through the Old Testament. They get to where they're going and Jesus acts like he's going to walk on by. He does that a lot. He acts like he's going to keep going by them. And they stop him and say, come on, come on inside. Wait, there's, we want to hear more. Come on inside. They come inside, they sit down to eat. Jesus breaks the bread, blesses it, breaks the bread, hands it to them. And immediately, that's a tip of the hat to the communion, immediately they recognize him. And he disappears. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why do I like John Owen so much? There's a lot of systematic theology stuff that I can't read because it just feels like you're just trying to split hairs and this doesn't... But when I read Owen, my heart burns within me. And you need to find someone that does that. If you're just getting smarter, it's not enough. It's dangerous. If your heart is burning as you're reading this person, you have to keep putting the book down and thank God for how good he is, you're onto something. That is doctrine being received by hearts that have experienced what James calls a saving faith. We should be profoundly committed students to theology. 
We should know as much about God as we can figure out through Scripture and through other people who help us understand Scripture. We should know as much as we can about all that God has given us in Christ through the gospel. Because the more we know about who God is and what he has given us in Christ, the more adventurous and fulfilling and fruitful and helpful and generous and generative and creative our lives will be, the more interesting our lives will be. Theology makes you interesting. Everything else makes you interesting temporarily. Theology makes you eternally interesting. And the more our lives marked by a steady flow of selfless acts of service to others empowered by the love of God flowing through us the purpose of theology is to open our eyes to how glorious God is how good he is and how scandalously gracious he is towards us so what's the challenge for us today what's the challenge for you today as you as you leave here and have lunch and go to the fair how does this affect you today The challenge is to commit to spending the rest of your life developing your understanding of who God is and what he's given us in Christ. That's the challenge. That's all. Easy application. There is no better investment of your time. There is no better investment of your time. There is no more important investment of your time. It will lead to a good life filled with good works. It'll lead to a life of consequence. You will be what the Bible calls fruitful. Because if you are abiding in Christ, you will be fruitful. John 15. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in a season. Its leaf does not wither. Psalm 1. The more you fill your thoughts with things that are true and good about God the more interesting and creative and beautiful and glorious your life will be. Not for the sake of knowledge itself, demonic, for the sake of knowing God and developing intimate friendship with Jesus. So here's just three practical diagnostic questions to help you evaluate your current understanding about God. Is it too plain? Does your knowledge about God not go beyond what you learned in Sunday school? Are you still bringing the Bible to church that you got in Sunday school? I I maybe shouldn't have said that because if that's true, that's okay. It's okay if you're bringing your Bible from Sunday school, but is it well used? Are you dipping into your scripture? Are you reading it, not in a way just to get smarter because you have to out of duty, but you're reading it to really have your eyes open to who God is? Are you interested in God through Scripture? Are you interested in people who help you understand Scripture? Or is your understanding too plain? How much time have we invested? And I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I'm just trying to help you have a joyful life. How much time have you invested in getting to know God this week? Do you believe that the more you know him, the more you know about him, will lead to a more joyful life? It will. Is your understanding about God too plain? Is your understanding about God too peripheral? Think of theology as a circle, okay? At the center of it is the gospel. It's the God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the ways they work together to save humanity. This is the gospel, okay? This is the center. At the peripheral of the 
of the circle, towards the end of the circumference, there are some people see the Bible as, well, that's going to get uninteresting as a while, the center. So we're going we're gonna to spend inordinate amounts of time studying these peripheral things. We're going to spend a year studying some random thing in Revelation. You could spend a lot of time studying things that really aren't close to the center. And the question is, why are you doing that? You, you don't think this is interesting enough? We have a very thin understanding about the gospel if we don't think this is interesting enough. We have to go out here to the peripheral to get all these weird, interesting facts about God. And we start reading about how you know the Bible's filled with secret codes and all this stuff. And the gospel is interesting enough. You could probably spend your entire eternity learning about God through the things that are in the center. So is your understanding about God too peripheral? Have you gotten away from Jesus, who's at the center of Scripture, Old and New Testament? Is your understanding about God, is your theology too pragmatic? Pragmatic, which means just essentially too practical, too focused on just tell me what to do. Well, if you, if you just... If you could see God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't need to tell you what to do. You would do it out of love for him. Sometimes being too pragmatic in our faith isn't helpful. The goal of you leaving here is to be more in wonder and in awe of God. The goal is not to merely help you develop better habits I want you to leave more at rest and more inspired by God and who he is and what he's done and the rest will come. So here's the question. How has your heart, how has your heart been warmed to Jesus through your deeper understanding about God in the past six months? Or are we coasting? How have you become more alive to Jesus? Don't, don't worry about how you're supposed to act different. Just think, I want you to think for now, has your heart warmed to Jesus? Do you talk about him? Do you think about him throughout the day? Would you say that your life is marked by um, a maturity that comes from developing a friendship with Jesus? In the past six months, how has your heart warmed to him? Now, this doesn't have to be difficult. If you're new and you want to explore what it might look like to follow Jesus, you can get to know him. You can just read a paragraph or so, a few verses a day through Mark or John. Mark will give you an idea of how he lived. John will give you, will pull back the curtains and allow you to see Wow, this is a man that's from heaven. They're both really, really rich. <laughs> Every gospel is really, really rich. But if you're looking for somewhere to start, Mark or John would be good. And just get to know him. Follow him around. There is nothing about Christ that is not true about the Father. If you want to know the Father, look at him through Jesus. Look at him in Jesus. That's enough for now. Next week, we're going to take a break, and I'm going, to, I'm going to walk through something with you that has become a daily prayer for me, and we're entering into the season of fall, and for next week is kind of a fall kickoff, um, and 
Fall is a time where it's okay to allow things drop off your schedule. So fall is a time where we look outside and leaves are dying and falling off trees. And I, I want to talk with you and I want to share a prayer that I wrote for myself that might free you to not drive yourself crazy by adding way too many things to your schedule this year. I want to share a prayer that will help us grow in discernment and I would invite you to pray it regularly, daily, like I have been and see what, what happens this fall. It's going to be kind of a practice for us for this, this next couple of fall months. And it's designed to help us be attuned to what the Spirit is doing because as we've said, God will give you all the time, energy, and resources to do everything He's asking you to do, not necessarily everything you want to do, not necessarily everything everyone else wants you to do. So this will help you to live guilt-free and saying, no, not going to help with that. Or yes, Jesus, I think, would have me help with that. So we'll take a break next week and jump back into James the week after that. Get to know Jesus. Study rich theology, but only the stuff that makes you excited, only the stuff that makes you energized, only the stuff that makes you weep at the goodness of God. The rest of it, don't worry about it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.